Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, October 14th, we are studying Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Israel is finally in the promised land. Before any battles are fought, however, the men of Israel must receive circumcision, and the people of Israel keep the Passover. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you for having me. So we get started today, Pastor Speckard. Give us some context. What should we know preparing to look at Joshua chapter 5 today? Yeah, so Joshua 5, you have the uh, Israelites have just sort of entered into the Promised Land. Joshua 3 and 4, you have them crossing the Jordan River, and that's a very famous scene that uh, recalls, of course, uh, another time that our Lord led his people across water uh, with the Exodus. And so you have a lot of uh, kind of looking back in the chapters that just happened, and now uh, we know that coming up in the chapters after chapter 5, we're looking forward as the Israelites are preparing to enter into this land and then sort of take over this land led by God uh, that he had promised them. Uh, and Joshua chapter 6, of course, begins with the uh, the battle in Jericho. Uh, and then chapter 5 is just sort of this in-between chapter, uh, kind of a transition from the past to the future. Uh, the Israelites have crossed the river uh, the conquest has not yet begun, and they pause, as you noted, to sort of uh, receive these sacramental uh, gifts from God, uh, sacraments sort of in the Old Covenant understanding, uh, circumcision and Passover. Uh, and so you sort of have this uh, this brief interlude where God's people are going to um, take a breath, uh, be served by their Lord uh, before carrying forward with the mission that he has uh, given Joshua and the other Israelites. I like the way that you said that, to receive these sacramental gifts from God, you know, understanding that very broadly in the Old Testament sense of it. But then that that you said it's a brief interlude to be served by their God before they go forward. I think that's a, a fantastic way of saying it, because otherwise it can be very— like we're talking about primarily circumcision and the Passover in this text. And of course the Lord has laid out instructions for how these things to be are to be done. But I think that perhaps the temptation is to view this simply as a matter of obedience. You know, you, you have to do this or else. And of yeah. course, you know, they do these things because God has commanded and it is right to obey the commands of God. But to recognize within these two things, God serving them, I think is just a, that's such a helpful way of approaching this text so that we don't, you know, list, miss the larger scriptural perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I, I had kind of uh, forgotten until I had a chance to, to study this chapter uh, is that both circumcision and the Passover, these things had ceased uh, during the time of the wilderness wandering. Um, so, you know, you have that really um, uh, sort of this really dynamic 
uh, restoration where this new generation is going to be uh, moving forward, uh, sort of proceeding with the old covenant promises, uh, and they're restarting or God is restarting amongst them uh, these uh, covenants, sort of relational sacraments, these gifts by which God claims his people as his own. Um, so it's really, yeah, it's, certainly there's a component of God commands and the people follow, but it's much more than that. It is God um, establishing or reestablishing amongst his people that covenant relationship uh, in the ways that they would have known uh, in generations gone by, uh, but something that they hadn't done for some time. Uh, and it's all it's all very fresh. It's all very new uh, what God is doing for his people here. So, yeah, well, and that's I mean, that reminds me of of a refrain that happened throughout the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses was telling the people, look, this covenant is not just for your fathers, but it is for you who are about to go into the promised land. And here would be two fantastic examples of that very promise coming to fruition, that circumcision is for you, this new generation that's now in the promised land. The Passover is for you. And that's, I mean, what a wonderful reminder and a fulfillment of that promise that we've seen in Deuteronomy. The other thing that, that does stand out to me, and you use the word interlude, and I think that's such a fantastic thing because you know, we, we know that the people of Israel are going to go into the promised land and there there is going to be a military aspect to it and we're going to we're going to talk about battles in the coming chapters and so they've they've finally gotten over there they're on the other side of the jordan finally and we're going to hear that in fact the people there are afraid but the first thing they do isn't to pick up their swords and fight the first thing they do is to receive this service from the lord and I find that just to, you know, the fact that, this may sound silly, but the fact that chapter five comes between chapter four and chapter six, that the first thing they do on the other side of the Jordan isn't to start marching around Jericho, but is to receive these two Old Testament sacraments. Again, what a wonderful reminder of how, the, how they're receiving this land. It's not by their own might or strength or conquest, but it is the Lord who's leading them and serving them. And so the first order of business isn't actually battle. The first order of business is, is worship. And that, man, that's just a fantastic thing. Yeah, absolutely. And what a key thing for us in the, in the New Testament church as well, who um, obviously totally different circumstances, but I think maybe a similar dynamic as we are you know, coming out of a pandemic and we're all aware of the broad cultural changes that are happening. And I think that uh, especially maybe for pastors, I know that I fall into this trap. There's a temptation to begin strategizing and, and begin acting pragmatically and thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? Or in terms of our congregational um, ministry, what are we going to do? Um, and there's a time and a place for that, but that must always come after uh, a very deliberate focus upon what is God doing? Uh, what has God promised to do? Uh, what has he done and what will he do? And, you know, for for our tradition, we... Uh, that that is that is sacrament. That's a sacramental conversation. Uh, that God is active amongst His people, present with His people, uh, and the gifts that He gives uh, are sort of the, uh, the the focus points for that. Um, in the old covenant, it was circumcision and the Passover. In the new covenant is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, in both places, it is God with His people for His people. That's the start and that's the finish, uh, and certainly needs to take precedence over our own plans and our own activity. Um, we know that on paper, but it's a great reminder here in Joshua 5. That's right. And and, and all this conversation, it reminds me of, uh, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but back in the book of Deuteronomy, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses gives the people laws concerning warfare. 
and, and we don't need to get into every anything there other than just the order that's given, that the first thing that happens when they see the armies is they're to remember that the Lord is with them, and they're to hear first from the priests. They're, they're not to hear from the general first. They need to hear from the priests first. And again, it's not precisely those things happening here necessarily, other than putting first things first, keeping the, the yeah. fact in front of you that it is the Lord your God who is leading you, going before you, he will win the victory for you. And so you have this moment for worship before the battle actually comes. So that, I think, sets the, the context for us very well. Let's take a look here at Joshua chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up, in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's our text for today. That's Joshua 5, verses 1 to 15. All right, so Pastor Speckard, in the first two verses, or I guess just the first verse of this chapter, that we find out the reaction to the surrounding kings from the crossing of the Jordan River. What does is, what is the text say about the way the kings understood what had happened when the people crossed over? Well, it's no small thing to have the Jordan River dry up uh, and the people cross on, on dry land. I think that um, uh, as word got out about that event, it makes sense that the uh, surrounding kings would have been uh, concerned and, and downright fearful. Uh, and also by this time, you know, the, the Israelites weren't the largest people, uh, but their movement from Egypt to the, the land uh, to the east of the Jordan River would have been noticed 
and they had some military skirmishes, as we know from the book of Deuteronomy. And and there would have been, you know, this growing um, uh, worry amongst the Canaanites and the Amorites uh, there in the promised land. But I think that, you know, that's probably secondary to uh, what the Lord is doing. Uh, when you hear this language of their hearts melting and there was no longer any spirit within them, um, you just have this strong sense that, that God is active here. Uh, and that becomes really significant because uh, it would stand to reason from a military perspective that if the Amorites and the Canaanites were uh, worried about these uh, Israelites who were coming into their land, uh, right after they cross a river would be a great time to attack. Get them before they're established, uh, sort of you know waylay them before they can get a foothold. Um, but this fear uh, that is instilled within the Amorites and the Canaanites gives the Israelites time to uh, pause and um, uh, receive the gifts that God has given in circumcision in the Passover, uh, which becomes really significant. And I think the whole thing just just seems very, very divine that, that God is sort of allowing his people uh, a moment to um, found themselves upon him, uh, which it wouldn't have happened that way if the Amorites or the Canaanites or someone had attacked immediately. If that makes sense. Oh, it, it does, and I think that's a, a very helpful thing to to keep in mind here. Because uh, you know, when I when I was reading this particular verse, and and noticing how the Amorite kings, they particularly heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan, it, it reminded me of the way Rahab had spoken back in chapter two, that the people of Jericho had heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, and so I'm I mean I'm kind of thinking in on along those lines that. The, the kings of the Amorites are sort of putting two and two together. They've heard what the Lord did when he dried up water in Egypt. Now they know the Lord dried up water again, and they're afraid because of that. Just kind of, you know, at connecting the dots. But I think yeah. the, the way that, that you're bringing out that there's, this is more than just a, a natural fear or connecting the dots, but the Lord is actually doing something here to allow his people this time for worship. I, I think that fits very well, too. And, and I'm reminded of, at least in, in part, the way in Exodus chapter 14, where the Lord prevents the people or the armies of Egypt from attacking until the time is just right. Like, like you said, any, any general worth his salt would go get the allies together and attack them right now. Why don't they do that? Well, there's no pillar of cloud and fire that's mentioned here, but it's, it's almost like this is the Lord working through his divine providence to keep that from happening so that his people do have the time to worship. So I, I appreciate that perspective that you brought out. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that's exactly it. And throughout this, I mean, that's really what, what you have in Joshua 5 here is God is active. Uh, these things that are transpiring, it's the work of God sort of amongst men and for men, uh, for his people or in the hearts of his people's enemies. Uh, and and verse one is a, a great example of that. So from that, then that's that's the reaction to the kings. We go back to the people of Israel, and and we have one of those situations. We've seen this pattern where the Lord's going to say something to Joshua, and Joshua is either going to tell the people or make sure that it gets carried out. That happens in this case. So verses two through uh, all the way through about nine deal with the matter of circumcision. So. Uh, let's just talk about, you know, the command is make flint knives, circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Maybe just, just remind us what what's the background of circumcision in the Old Testament up to this point? Right. So if you go back to uh, God's covenant with Abraham, um, you know, which kind of takes form over uh, in a few stages. But in Genesis 17, 
God establishes this um, this act of circumcision amongst his people uh, that will be a um, sort of an identifying characteristic of uh, the descendants of Abraham, the people whom God has chosen. Um, and, you know, that is massively significant throughout the remainder of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I mean, Paul makes a big deal uh, about the significance of circumcision under the Old Covenant and then what the uh, sort of circumcision is for New Testament Christians. Um, it is this removal of, uh, by its very nature, a removal of flesh, which for we who are born into sin, um, that that's going to be uh, that's going to be significant, that God is removing from us. Um, and, and again, by its nature, you know, the the act has to do with, with a body part that we associate with passion and, and kind of um, uh, sort of earthly activity, not, not inherently bad, but something easily corrupted by sin. The act of circumcision is going to be a deliberate sacrifice of that flesh as a almost like a pledge of allegiance to God Almighty. But even as I say that, you want to be careful. Um, the way we can talk about circumcision, it, it sounds as though the sacrifice is on the part of the people. Uh, and it sounds like the act is being done by the people. But we have to remember it's God who establishes it. And it's God who's ultimately going to provide through the sacrifice of his son, the spiritual circumcision uh, that comes with faith. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a ton to unpack there, especially once we, start to draw some connections to baptism, but, but that's what we have being reestablished uh, amongst the, the sons of Israel here as they enter into the promised land. Mm-hmm. I think the other aspect about circumcision is also tied to the, to the matter of procreation and the promise of the, of the seed. You go all the way back to Genesis 3, you know, and, and the importance of the lineage of the Christ that is you know, yeah. throughout the Old Testament. Circumcision is, is chosen as a sign, I think, in addition to as a reminder for the people of the the fact that a promised savior is coming coming and and yeah. so you are you are marked then as a member of this group of people who is looking forward to that promise so i mean and you you were talking about with with circumcision and this is especially true in the way that paul talks about it in the new testament that there does come to be attached to this a matter of obedience or some sort of salvation by works and again, this is one of those cases where the Lord says, do this, and so it does need to be done, but there's, I mean, circumcision, I don't think is can be simplified so easily that you do this or else, but there is a, a graciousness, a giving of God in circumcision also. Yeah, that's a really great point. I love the law gospel dynamic of, on the one hand, the command, but also you you bring up the, you know, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15 there, that, you know, the seed of, of woman through this chosen people uh, is going to produce the you know the the, the gospel incarnate in Christ, um, and, and circumcision would have been a reminder of that promise, uh, and was from the beginning in Genesis 17. And and I think that that you know to, something specific to Joshua 5 is to remember that the people had been living without this, that you had children being born uh, in this new generation during the wilderness wandering, but the children weren't being circumcised, and. I think you have um, almost like a, a spiritual fasting going on uh, because you don't really know, and this is something that's discussed in the in the coming verses, but you don't really know were the children not being circumcised circumcised due to the negligence of um, uh, God's people, um, or were they not being circumcised as a sort of deliberate matter of 
waiting for God to reinstate that amongst them. Um, I think I prefer the latter interpretation because uh, it reminds us that, you know, the people were aware that their covenant relationship with God had been imperiled by their infidelity uh, and lack of trust at, you know, when they left Egypt. Um, now God is going to sort of reestablish that, refound it, and that's going to be a remembrance of promises God made, um, you know, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, as you noted. So uh, there is a great deal of comfort, even in this act, which is inherently um, uncomfortable by, by its nature. Sure. So, okay, just to, to kind of dig into that a little bit. So the, the, the reason that no one's been circumcised in the wilderness is not spelled out in the text. The fact of it has been spelled out, but why that is, is, is a bit ambiguous. And so, you know, negligence or maybe, as you said, a spiritual fasting, a recognition that something, something in the, in the relationship that Israel has with the Lord in the wilderness wandering isn't quite right until this moment. And so the Lord reestablishes that covenant with them, gives it back to them again for their good, such that from this point forward, then, you know, the what was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 of every male eight days old, this is what is to happen. That's the way it is going forward. So, so something more like a, a spiritual fasting now being given back to them. Here's the gift again. Perhaps that's the, the way we need to take this. I think so. And it lends a lot of weight to the significance of being in the promised land. And you see that also in the, the um, verses to come with the celebration of the Passover. Uh, but it's a big deal that suddenly uh, we are in the land that God had established for our forefathers. And we are, um, uh, you know, the grain that made this bread is is grain of the land. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing uh, that this kind of middle transitionary era of the wandering in the wilderness, that's being left behind. And, you know, to use the language of circumcision, literally cut off. And now the people are going to move forward, um, you know, sort of in the way that they should have from the beginning when they left Egypt. Um, and and that's that's key throughout this. It's, it's a new place. It's a new generation. But it's the same covenant. And it's the same God and the same promises. And that's uh, I think what what comes through here. So, and, and again, that that makes what happens in verses two through nine of this text less about you know this was missing and it needs to happen before anything. I mean, it's it's less about fixing what had been neglected, but more about God giving to His people something that had been withheld, at least in in some way, shape, or form. So this becomes then a a reassurance that the promise given to Abraham all the way back in, in Genesis 12, even before circumcision was given, the fact that, that these people are included in circumcision means they're in, they're not out, and they are very literally in the promised land, and by the mark of circumcision, they are now very literally in God's chosen people. There's, there's no doubt at this point who they are and who they belong to. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that in the naming of the places so that, you know, the, the Gibeath Haraloth, the, the Hill of Foreskins is what that would be literally translated. Uh, thankfully, that name gives way to a much, uh, much more poetic, uh, you know, the, the place is called Gilgal, um, which, you know, in, in the Hebrews is the root is to roll away. God says not to jump us too far ahead, but in sure. verses eight and nine, uh, God says, you know, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt, uh, of Egypt from you. Um, and you do again, it's just that the, the 
problems and the trespasses and the infidelity of the last 40 years, uh, that is being cut off, rolled away. And we are starting now uh, back at the sort of at the root of the covenant that God made with Abraham um, back in Genesis 17 and that promise, which extends all the way back to Genesis 3, as you noted. So talk a little bit more. Since, since you, you brought up the name Gilgal, which is given there in verse 9, and, and the explanation that the Lord says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt for, from you, and you know, Gilgal meaning to roll or something like that. What, what is that reproach of Egypt? And in, I mean, is it, is it just the lack of circumcision? Is there something about the slavery in Egypt involved? What is that reproach of Egypt that God is taking away from the people here? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's maybe a little bit ambiguous. Uh, I think we, we hear the reproach of Egypt and we might immediately think that it's referring to the, the time of slavery in Egypt. But that that really was rolled away with the Exodus that, you know, God's people uh, were freed. And, you know, the first Passover and the first crossing of the water, uh, that would have sort of been associated with, um, you know, the, the time of slavery in Egypt. So I think it has much more to do probably with the uh, time between the Exodus and the entry into the Promised Land, which was a time of you know initially tremendous blessing, and then became a time of of uh, uh, you know tremendous sorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, God is is sort of rolling all that away, and it, you know that would have been a huge deal for this new generation that you know the uh, the men of a certain age had perished in the in the wilderness. Um, the the men who were old enough to do the things that the Israelites were about to embark upon, the fighting and the, the conquesting. Uh, well, the ones who were there in Egypt, they've perished. And now this new generation led by Joshua and Caleb, uh, who are for the first time kind of taking the lead. Moses is gone. Now it's Joshua. Um, uh, God is making clear to them and for them uh, that they are doing so on firm footing, uh, that their reproaches of the last four decades have been rolled away. Now we are moving forward, uh, not with a clean slate. You wouldn't want to put it so, um, uh, you know, so bluntly, but but very much with um, the promises of God under the feet of the people. That's the foundation upon which they're walking. And you can't you can't fail to mention, you know, Gilgal uh, sounds a lot like Golgotha. Yeah. Uh, this is something that the the um, uh, uh, Professor Harstad's commentary, the Blue CPH commentary. Uh, points out, and I think it's just it's just really, really brilliant uh, that we hear Gilgal, we think Golgotha, we hear roll away, we think the stone rolled away from the tomb, and it's very much the same thing, that God is taking away the reproaches, taking away the sin, taking away the, the past infidelity, and now we are moving forward uh, with the covenant promise of God as our foundation. Um, it's a huge, a huge deal. Yeah, wonderful foreshadows of Christ here in Joshua 5. We'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Dan Specker today. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 14th. We're studying Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 to 15 with Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we were talking about the circumcision that takes place for the people of Israel at Gilgal in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua. And we've made mention of this, at least in passing, in, in several places, that circumcision in the Old Testament points forward to something in the New Testament, and I think you've said it, it's, it's baptism. St. Paul talks about this. So so let, let's make that connection. How does how does circumcision and what happens in Joshua 5 point us forward to the, the gift of baptism that God gives to his church today? Yeah, this is something that, that Paul makes really, really clear in the second chapter of Colossians. And, and if I can, I'll just read a couple of verses here that I think are kind of foundational to the idea uh, where Paul writes, In him, that is Christ, you were circumcised by a circumcision not done with human hands, uh, by the taking off of the body of sinful flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also resurrected with him through faith from the working of God, who raised him from the dead. While you were still dead in transgressions and in the foreskin of your sinful flesh, God made you alive with Christ, graciously forgiving to us all transgressions. Uh, so, you know, St. Paul, who would have been very familiar with circumcision uh, as a Jewish man, um, is helping the Gentile church uh, throughout the Mediterranean world, because he writes about this in other places, uh, helping them to understand the um, uh, transition from this old covenant gift uh, of physical circumcision, um, helping them to understand that that is given way now to a spiritual circumcision uh, that is received in faith and marked by uh, baptism, this washing where no longer is the blood of the blood we shed, but the blood shed by Christ. And the uh, flesh that is being cut away uh, is being done so through the uh, in incarnation and atonement of the very Son of God who gave his body uh, that our flesh would be redeemed. So we could, I mean, we could talk for hours and, and people have spilled a lot of ink uh, kind of fleshing this idea out, no pun intended. But clearly uh, in the New Testament, baptism is seen as the uh, sort of the heir of circumcision in terms of the gifts of God. I mean, so is is there something to the the order then in Joshua five that you've got circumcision, baptism, and I know we're going to talk about this in a moment, but but then Passover, Lord's Supper, that that God is incorporating His people into His gifts in the in the order in which He gives. I mean, it it, it seems like the order is pretty intentional here. Oh, absolutely, and I think it makes it makes sense as we think about you know the the 
It wasn't the case in Joshua 5 for the reasons we've discussed, but in general, uh, the normal normal course of action for circumcision was that the baby would be uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Um, and so when you have, when you have a, a new child of God, uh, what do we do with our children? Well, naturally, we feed them. Uh, and that sort of spiritual progression from being marked as a child of God to being fed by your heavenly father uh, is something with which the Israelites were well acquainted uh, and something that is obviously mirrored in the New Testament church. Uh, you don't begin to partake of the Lord's Supper prior to baptism. You're baptized first, and then it is the body and blood of Christ that nourishes the children of God. And that's actually, um, again, I, I hadn't remembered this until I was studying for this conversation. Um, in order to partake of the Passover, uh, the the males who partook had to be circumcised. Uh, otherwise, they weren't allowed to be at the table. And that goes back to uh, the way God established it in Exodus 12. Um, and, and so you do have this progression that is very deliberate and very clear. So uh, that takes us then to, to verse 10 of the text. The people have been circumcised in verses 8, and they're healing. Then starting in verse 9, they're still encamped there at Gilgal, and it is now the 14th day of the month when they keep the Passover. So again, remind us of the Passover and its Old Testament background. Right. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, when the people are leaving Egypt, uh, God has, uh, through Moses, um, uh, sent these plagues that are to varying degrees, uh, being either uh, recognized or rejected by Pharaoh. But this 10th plague is going to be the one that, uh, at least for a time, uh, sort of changes the mind of Pharaoh. Uh, God is going to send his destroyer, the angel of death, who's going to take the firstborn son uh, um, of, of, of every living creature, uh, is going to perish unless... Uh, the son is protected by this ritual act that God establishes whereby a lamb is slain and the blood of the lamb is put upon the, um, uh, the door frame of the household. Then the firstborn son who resides there, the angel of death will pass over. And the son will live in the new Testament church. We obviously, we, we have become so accustomed to associating this with the Lord's supper and well, we should. Um, but that's, uh, I mean, this is, this is what God is doing to save his people from death. The blood of the lamb will be shed. Uh, innocent blood will save uh, the dying that they will live. It's all, it's gospel through and through. And, and within that event of the book of Exodus, there is given by God this matter of yearly remembrance, which, you know, and this is this is one when why weren't they celebrating it during the wilderness wanderings? I I should have I should have checked. I believe this was something that God gave to them when they got to the promised land, and the maybe even just the logistics of doing this during the wilderness wandering would have been difficult for them. I don't know what is the, is it a similar thing here? There's been a spiritual fast, and now here comes the gift once they're in the promised land. In terms of the reason that they haven't done it till now. Yeah, that's a great question. I think so. I mean, I think, as I as I recall, you have the Passover celebrated at Sinai as well. And then after that, um, you have the rebellion in Numbers 14. And that seems to be when when suddenly um, uh, suddenly the people are, are the, the covenant is, is kind of coming apart. Uh, God is faithful, but the people aren't. And so circumcision stops, the Passover stops. And one has to wonder... Um, you know, God, when he established the Passover, he made it clear that this would be an annual remembrance. Well, one year into it, <laughs> they do it once right. more and then they stop for, for 38 or 39 years. Um, so, you know, hard to know uh, if that was, was something 
uh, and, you know, uh, commanded by God that they cease or they were being negligent or being deliberate uh, in fasting. What I do know is that, uh, you know, you, we can just imagine how this Passover would have been received yeah. amongst the people after a generation of, of abstaining. Um, you know, I was thinking as, as I was reading these things uh, about how, how it would have been for the, um, you know, our theological forebears, the, the German Lutherans who came over, the first time they celebrated the supper on these new shores, uh, the first time they gathered for worship, the first time, you know, a child born in the new world was baptized uh, in the new world. I mean, all of these things, you know, old things happening in a new place. There's just something powerful about that. Uh, and surely this this first Passover in Canaan uh, would have been um, an example of that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and especially for the people of Israel, which this is a land that the Lord has promised them from all the way back to Abraham. And, and here they are now in the land. And again, they're not fighting yet. The, the Lord is giving them his gifts already in the land, holding back the enemy army so that he can give to them these gifts. And I think, you know, it's right to picture this as a scene with great joy. There's, there's not a lot mentioned in, in terms of the, the reactions of the people, but I, I think that's exactly the way we need to see this, is this is, this is the people of Israel doing so, celebrating the Passover very joyfully. One thing that, that is mentioned here in connection with the Passover being celebrated, is that for the first time they eat of the produce of the promised land, which we know is a, a land flowing with milk and honey. They particularly eat the unleavened cakes and parched grain made from the grain grown there, and that's when the manna ceases, which that, I mean, that's a pretty big thing too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really a great example of, of kind of the um, there, there's all sorts of things in our walk of faith that are sort of um, uh, kind of, what would you call it, sort of middle periods or, or um, arrangements that are for a, a temporary time, a foretaste almost. I think manna, we, we often refer to in the New Testament refers to um, as, you know, the, you know, as bread from heaven, this, you know, sustenance given by God. We As New Testament Christians, of course, we're going to be uh, thinking about the uh, connection to the bread of life and, and and the Lord's Supper, and well, we should. But the manna, that was, I mean, that was for a brief time. Um, it was for the wilderness. It wasn't the sort of total fulfillment of God's promises uh, regarding how he would feed his people. That comes in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land uh, where they are going to uh, feast uh, sumptuously. And the way it's described here in Joshua, you know, the fruit of the land of Canaan this is what they've been waiting for. And it's not that the manna was was problematic. In fact, we know that the manna tasted good. But after uh, 40 years, the people were surely ready uh, to finally partake of this, you know, the, the true culmination of the promise that God had made regarding the, the land itself uh, and its produce. So um, uh, I, I was reminded, it's kind of it's kind of a stretch maybe, but I was reminded of the, the now not yet conversation mm-hmm. Uh, and also the way we think of, of heaven uh, as compared to the resurrection. You know, God gives many good things, but those good things uh, sometimes give way to better things. And the promise, uh, it's in its full culmination and its total fulfillment uh, that we, we finally, 
uh, receive everything God would give his people. Mm. I, I, and I, I, when I hear about the manna ceasing and them eating of the fruit of the land of Canaan now for the first time, and just knowing that it's in connection with the Passover, my mind also jumps to the celebration of the Lord's Supper as, as we have it right now. And, and what, what is it? Is it a, I had a, I believe it was the, the pastor who confirmed me, Pastor Mark Bars, would, would ask confirmation classes, you know, is the, is the Lord's Supper, is it a, is it a feast or is it a, an appetizer or a snack? And, and that maybe sounds a little impious, but what I, what I think he was getting at is, you know, like, wh- what are we, I mean, on the one hand, it's a feast, like this is the very body and blood of Christ that sustains us yeah. in this world and, and what joy it is to gather Yet at the same time, we know there's something more coming that, I mean, you use the word foretaste, right? A foretaste of the feast to come, that that what we receive here, as blessed and as as wonderful as it is, we know that there's something greater coming in the resurrection. And it's it's maybe not exactly the same, because I, I don't want to, certainly, I don't want to cast any any ill thought against the Lord's Supper. Of course not. But to know that there's something even greater coming in eternity, it's, it's like what is happening here for Israel. That's what, what we're waiting for, for that resurrection moment. Absolutely. And, and I think it's just a reminder that all of these things are taking place as part of a, a continual narrative. So, you know, God is, is with his people uh, by promise throughout. And the manna gives way to the, the, you know, reinstitution of the Passover gives way to the new covenant in the body and blood of Christ. Uh, gives way to the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, um, you know, and, and all of it is good. And indeed, particularly as we think about the transition from the Lord's Supper to to kind of that, that heavenly or post-resurrection feast, um, you know, what a gift it is that God has given. We are already, even now, yeah. uh, receiving uh, the nourishment we'll receive in eternity. But there is something too, also the fact that when we gather in our, you know, at the communion rail around the half circle, you know, the circle is not complete uh, in the sense that we're here uh, still in the valley of shadow Um, soon though we won't be soon we'll be home and i think that you have kind of a similar i mean really for the israelites this is a homecoming now this generation hadn't been there before but this is where god had promised uh to um, uh, sort of be with his people and to provide for his people Um, we in the new testament church have a similar fulfillment to look forward to as we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, and it's not to disparage one, not to disparage right. the present for the sake of the future, but it is to recognize there is a future promised and we are, we are looking forward to that. Well, and I think you, you use the term, which sometimes pastors will, will throw out there and it is a good term the the now and the not yet of, of our Christian faith can you just build on that a little bit? Because I, I really think that helps to flesh out what we've been talking about. Yeah, I think, um, is it Professor Gibbs who makes a big deal of that? I, you know, I went to Fort Wayne, so I, I'm hearing a lot of these things uh, secondhand. I don't remember which, I, f- I think it's one of the professors at St. Louis, who makes a big deal of the fact that, you know, through the gospel and through word and sacrament ministry, uh, we as Christians have everything that God would offer his people. Uh, it's not as though we are getting in the body and blood of Christ something only partial. Uh, It's not as though right now we are living by partial forgiveness or partial grace. No, God has poured out upon us generously uh, the the love that was uh, sent in and through his son and continues to be uh, delivered by the spirit. Um, And yet, even as we rejoice in those things now, uh, we recognize that 
we are not yet home. Uh, and I, as I continue to struggle against the old Adam, as I continue to be beset by sin and temptation, as I continue to uh, be surrounded by the sorrow and suffering and, and sickness of this fallen world, um, I have to recognize that as good as the gifts God have given me now are, um, I'm not yet uh, to the sort of the, the complete fulfillment of the promise because my sinful flesh still clings and my sinful heart uh, still, um, uh, you know, still nags and my, uh, I'm so easily, uh, uh, you know, tempted by the, the devil who would see me fall. That won't always be the case. Um, soon and very soon, uh, I will be in the presence of God uh, fully and forever. And that is what we are ultimately looking forward to as Christians. And, and in that way, then, I think these verses from Joshua 5 point us, I mean, fill us with an anticipation and a longing for that day when God's gifts are made complete and, and we receive the absolute fullness of them. And as you said, not that we have a partial anything right now, but that when, when our Lord returns, that we have this same joy that the people of Israel did to celebrate the Passover in the promised land, to eat the fruit of the promised land, and and that a text like this might invite us to pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's that's always the prayer. Amen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so then after, okay, so we've got, and, and well, before we move on, one more thing with the Passover, just to make sure, what's the, we talked about the connection between circumcision and baptism. Just remind us, what's the, the connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper? Right. So it was the Passover that our Lord was celebrating with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Uh, and, you know, every Sunday that we go to church and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we hear those words uh, that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant or the new Testament in my blood. So you have a transition from the old covenant and the sacrificial meal and the blood of the lamb uh, that was sort of encapsulated by the Passover now transitioning to the lamb of God. Uh, shedding his blood for the sake of his people. Uh, the children are being spared eternal death by this perfect sacrifice. And so now we no longer as Christians celebrate the Passover uh, because we have been um, uh, brought into a greater meal. Uh, we have been brought into uh, the supper served by and in uh, the body and blood of Christ. Um, so as, as we know. Yeah, so we've got baptism, Lord's Supper, circumcision, Passover. The people of Israel have received these two gifts. They've been served by the Lord there in the promised land. And then our chapter today ends with Joshua meeting one who calls himself the commander of the army of the Lord. This is a, a strange, perhaps interesting interaction that Joshua has. He, he looks up there by Jericho, and he sees this man who's holding a drawn sword, Joshua wonders whose side he's on. The man says, I'm neither. He says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face and worships this man. What, what is going on here? Who is this guy? Yeah, so if you take just verses 13, 14, and 15, it's maybe, maybe a little bit ambiguous as to who this guy is. Um, we hear the commander of the army of the Lord, and we think, you know, possibly, uh, possibly an angel uh, like St. Michael or, or something like that. But um, a couple of things uh, show us that, that probably something more is happening here. Uh, one, the reaction of Joshua. Uh, he doesn't immediately uh, recognize this uh, you know, man with the drawn sword uh, to be divine. But as soon as he hears the man speak, uh, what does Joshua do? He falls on his face 
worships. Uh, and then the way that the Lord or the commander of the, the Lord's army uh, responds to Joshua's worship by saying, take off the sandals from your feet. Uh, we're reminded of Moses in the burning bush. This is the type of thing that happens when God is present. Um, Joshua would have known better than to worship even an angel. Uh, I think you, you, you're pretty much forced to conclude that at the very least, Joshua thought he was speaking uh, to and with God. Um, the other thing is, you know, the whole sort of uh, uh, the verses prior to this, this interaction, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard not to think in terms of, as you were saying, okay, circumcision, baptism, Passover, Lord's Supper, and then suddenly someone is present. Mm. Well, if you know anything about God's sacramental interaction with his people, uh, when we talk about circumcision and baptism and Passover and the Lord's Supper, as New Testament Christians, we are thinking about Emmanuel, God with us. And this is how God is with us, not just the idea of God, but he is present amongst his people uh, personally and physically. Um, and so with that in mind, then we come upon this physical person is suddenly there. I think we're ready for this to be God. Uh, and, and I think that's the, um, you know, different traditions will interpret this in different ways. But I think the way Luther interpreted it, interpreted it and the way that um, many Orthodox Lutherans have is that, yes, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Mm. Joshua is not worshiping an angel here. He wouldn't have done so. Uh, he's worshiping the presence of God um, in front of him. So, and, and he does give his name here or his his title as the commander of the army of the Lord. But I'm, I'm right there with you that, that I think we should probably understand this as the pre-incarnate Christ himself coming to Joshua. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, sometimes he is also referred to as, and it uses the word angel, but maybe we should, it'd be better to translate it, messenger, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord of Yahweh particularly. And, and I think it, in at least with this text, the, a great connection is to go back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses speaks to this same figure, the Lord or the angel of the Lord, in in the burning bush. And there Moses is told to take off his sandals because it's holy ground. And here you have Joshua being told the same thing. I think when you put those two texts side by side, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. We need to understand this as the Lord reminding Joshua— what he's been telling him in the book all along, that he's going to be with him, leading him, that he goes before him, and and on the cusp of the battle that's coming, the Lord once again reminds Joshua in, in this very physical way, I think, that he is with him going before him as the as the one who's going to do the fighting for him. Yeah. Yeah, which is the perfect culmination of the sacramental presence that we've we've kind of been been working through uh, with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and, you know, we, we know what this looks like, uh, and, and you'll be studying what this looks like in Joshua as they, they conquer the promised land and, and um, God delivers the land over to his people as he promised to do. It's not the Israelites winning these battles, and Jericho is going to be the sort of the archetype example of that. God is winning the battle. He is leading his people. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, that application extends to the New Testament church as well. We aren't given the task of conquering a land, uh, but we all know the battles we fight against sin, death, and the devil. And what a powerful reminder that as we are on the cusp of those battles, uh, as individuals, as families, as congregations, as a, as a broader church uh, body, uh, to recall that uh, it's not 
our strength and is not our leadership. Uh, this will be the strength of God made manifest amongst his people in the ways that he has established for them to receive his presence. And he leads and he fights and he wins. Uh, and, and, you know, all we can do is say, thanks be to God. Uh, he is with us. Emmanuel uh, is no lie. Yeah. Well, and, and even just the thing that, that the commander of the army of the Lord gives Joshua to do, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And, and Joshua does that. I think, you know, again, we should see the connection to Moses. And we've been seeing that throughout these first five chapters of Joshua, that over and over again, the Lord establishes Joshua as the chosen successor to Moses. You know, just as Moses led the people, so Joshua is now doing it. So we shouldn't miss that parallel. But even just the, the act of taking his sandals off at this moment, I mean, if you look in your your ESV, the next section is, is titled by the editors of the ESV, The Fall of Jericho. We know what's about to happen. And so Joshua is about to get ready for a battle. The first thing that the Lord has him do is take off his sandals. Now, I suppose he probably put them back on eventually for his his march around the city. But you know, again, what a what a strange way to begin getting ready for a battle unless it's the Lord who's doing the fighting, unless he's the one who's the commander and you are simply following him, trusting in his word that he'll do what he says. Then that starts yeah. to make a little more sense. Yeah, and that's, again, I think this is something we talked about at the start of the show, particularly for pastors and, and maybe particularly today where we, we really are facing um, uh, sort of generational challenges that maybe haven't been faced by the church, at least in America, for a, a, if, a long time, if ever. And it's very tempting to focus entirely upon what we're going to do. Uh, how am I going to prepare myself? How am I going to prepare my people? Uh, what am I going to say? Uh, and it's not hard to see how that is going to be so easily, um, that way of thinking will be so easily uh, waylaid by the devil. But as soon as we are focused upon what we do, uh, that is, I mean, um, that is, we are, we are ripe for the picking uh, when it comes to uh, the devil leading us astray. Uh, but if we can keep in front of us uh, what God is doing and begin every day and every week uh, and every year with the worship of God and the celebration of God's presence amongst us in baptism and the Lord's Supper, certainly the ongoing proclamation of his word. And for all of our meetings and committees and, and you know, various, um, uh, act, you know, activities that we would never lose sight of the centrality and the primacy of um, go and baptize, take and eat, take and drink. Uh, again, Emmanuel, God is present in these things. Pastor Dan Speckard is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us today with Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Pastor Speckard, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.